Thank you, that's just so kind. It's crazy to think that I was here 10 years ago when I was on staff. It's just insane that and I've got a daughter going to college this fall. She's running around here like she owned the church. Um, it's crazy. Um, Pastor Tiffany, so great to be just having you lead us in worship. And just, oh, I miss that. So great. Fantastic. And like AJ said, Pastor AJ said, uh, when I was back here, he wasn't yet a pastor. Telus was a college graduate or maybe still in college. Miata was on the worship team, but she wasn't Pastor Miata. Funny story is um, when I, was, I first told Bishop Brett that I wanted to plant a church, he's like, Dehan, you can take anyone you want. Just name the person. So I went ahead and contacted AJ and <laughs> Telus and Miata. <laughs> what I, I mean, we both have a nose for talent, you know. And thank God they said no, because otherwise it would have affected your plans a little bit, a little bit. But so, so grateful to be here, to be sent out by this church. You should all know that um, you have a home when you're in Los Angeles. And um, we just, you guys are celebrating your 40th. We're, this past Easter, we celebrated our seventh anniversary as a church. And God's been so good. He's been so good. Um, there were some sketchy moments during the pandemic, because everything got shut down in our city. We rent a community college, so that campus shut down on us. At one point, we were about 20 people in a tent on a borrowed parking lot. Like, oh man, this was worse than when we first started. But now, uh, this past Easter, it was incredible to see over 800 people come to the church. Amen. Um, God's doing something powerful, something very powerful. And your church, your leadership, your pastors have been a lifeline to me. So thank you guys so much. Open your Bibles to John chapter 7, the very tail end of 7. We're going to look at a familiar passage um, where Jesus encounters a woman caught in adultery. Um, We're going to talk about the mercy of God today. Anyone need some mercy this morning? Hopefully it's all of you or else you'd be struck dead, right? (laughs) We are literally breathing because of God's mercy Uh, It might not seem like it in the Old Testament, but on balance, God's an incredibly merciful God. Psalm 103 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Because if he did, there'd be a flood every week. Okay, he'd have to do the laundry on this planet every week. It's that bad. But he lets us live. And in this darkened planet, He dared to send his son to rescue us. So you know on balance, God is a merciful God. Now in the Old Testament, it's it's kind of veiled. But in the New Testament, that veil is torn and Jesus is mercy incarnate. You see the heart of God in Jesus. And I can't think of a story that more compellingly displays the mercy of God than this one right here. This controversial passage, as you soon see, some people don't even preach off this passage because it seems like it's out of bounds. The mercy is so intense. In fact, if you look at your Bible, if it's a responsible Bible, this passage is italicized. And there's a disclaimer. How often do you see a disclaimer on a Bible passage? It says, the earliest manuscripts don't have this passage exactly in this spot. So the Bible was transcribed by many people over time, and the earliest manuscripts don't have the passage exactly here. Some are missing it. Some have it in in a different spot in Luke. Scholars look at the language in the Greek. It doesn't quite match John. Sounds more like Luke. 
more like Mark. And so they put this disclaimer here to say, we don't, we're not exactly sure it belongs here, but certainly it belongs in the canon. The early church fathers quoted from it, including Polycarp, who was within John's lifetime. It was canonized very early. It's included in the canon because it smells like Jesus, tastes like Jesus, and it was universally agreed that this was from Jesus, though the placement is not sure. So it's a legit passage that describes the heart of Christ. Let's read that together. They all went, then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Lord, we come to these words with humility. Would you speak? May we listen. May your good seed reach good soil. We pray this in your name. Amen. I see three beautiful things here that speak to the mercy of God, the mercy of Christ. And the first is this. Jesus does not stand with the stone throwers. His body posture is mentioned twice. It's really important you notice that. And I'll, I'll riff on that in just a bit. But just to give you context. Jesus is teaching in the outer courts of the temple, which is kind of the public area of the temple. Very accessible. And it's early in the morning. And that's where you just go find your favorite rabbi. Different rabbis would station themselves and start teaching, and a crowd would form. And Jesus was a fabulous teacher. He had the authority and revelation that other teachers did not have. So you can imagine the kind of crowd that formed around Jesus teaching, probably in the hundreds. And Jesus is seated teaching, and as he's teaching, dropping revelation, uh, a group interrupts them, Pharisees and, and teachers, some legitimate religious uh, establishment people. And they have a woman in tow and they throw her before the crowd. She's been caught in adultery. And the passage says they test Jesus with a fairly gnarly dilemma. You see, they were always trying to cook up ways to trip up Jesus. Jesus was reaching demographics they could not reach. He was getting rock star status and he came in, you know, came into the uh, temple with an entourage, and quickly there's hundreds of people. Like, he was a threat. So they're trying to think of ways to undermine him, and they thought of this ingenious way, which is if they were to present a woman who's clearly uh, caught in adultery, the Jewish law is to stone her. And if he's claiming to be Messiah, he at least has to be a faithful Jew and follow the law of Moses. 
But if he doesn't stone her and shows mercy, we can call him lawless. But if he does stone her, we can call him cruel. Because now his reputation of being a friend of sinners, kaput, gone. That's a tough situation to be in. Do you follow the law and kill her in public and, and you know, show yourself to be unpopular and unfriendly? Or do you prove yourself to be rebellious and disobedient to the law of Moses? Either way, we got you, Jesus. That's a tough test. And Jesus decides not to play ball. <laughs> He's already seated. These men approach him. And generally, when uh, establishment approaches you and your career is at risk, you stand up and address the men, but he stays down here. And instead of looking at the men, he looks down and he begins to scrawl with his finger. And scholars have debated, what is he writing? Is he doodling? What is he doing? But I think that's left unanswered because what's more important is his posture. The rest of the men are standing, angry, ready to kill and judge, accuse. And he is down here, changing up the whole pace. They wait upon him, refuses to answer. They badger him, the text says, won't answer. I think he's praying. I think he's talking to God. I think he's reading the room spiritually. And when he finally gets up, he says, let any one of you who's without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her and then back down into the crouch. And that phrase, that, that sentence tells me what he's doing in that position as the rest of the men are ready and eager to demolish, destroy him and destroy the woman. He's down here with his spiritual sonar, just, doo, 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 just scanning, just scanning, just reading what's really happening in this room. And when he stands up, he realizes... This place is full of hypocrites. Because last I checked, you can't commit adultery by yourself. Where's the guy? <laughs> and last I checked, it's really hard to catch someone in adultery. You don't text that out, you know? <laughs> you don't put that on Facebook Live, last I checked. Which means this whole thing was a setup. Someone betrayed her, set her up. The guy slinks away. And so there's no justice here. There's no desire to follow the law of Moses. All of this is a kangaroo court to undermine him and destroy her. Furthermore, he says, he says this, let any of you without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. He's not saying any of you who is perfect like God, because then this law would make no sense. In the actual context, what he means is anyone who has not sinned in the same way, which means... Every single dude there was guilty of adultery. Every single... And it makes sense in that society because it was really easy for men to abuse their wives. The society was rid to favor men. Men could divorce their wives for any reason. Porridge is cold, not enough intimacy, looked at you wrong. Literally, you could write a certificate of divorce. The, the rabbi or Sanhedrin stamps it. You're good to go. Men would trade out their wives like trading out their donkeys. And that's adultery. And they would sleep with temple prostitutes. Prostitution was considered fairly normal in the behavior of men back then. Or you just, you know, hooked up with someone without the wife knowing. There's all kinds of reasons why every single guy there 
was guilty of adultery. I used to think the reason why the older men dropped their rocks first and took off was because they're wiser. Now it's because I think they just live longer and sin more. That's the only reason. <laughs> they were on their third wife as opposed to the younger guys were on their second or something like that. I don't know. The only guy qualified to throw a rock. The only guy qualified who was perfect, who did not sin in that way, who could legitimately take a stone and whip it at the woman in, based on the law of Moses was Jesus. And where was Jesus? Down here. Refusing to be complicit with these men. His body is preaching a sermon. I am not one who throws stones. I am not one who hurls rocks. How about you all? How many of you are like ready to chuck something at someone or a group of people that you disagree with or don't like? You know, I, it, maybe it's been second grade since you've thrown a literal rock. But there's a thing called cancel and cancel culture where you throw social media posts, you throw words, you throw things that destroy people's lives, erase people from your existence. It's the same thing spiritually. Anytime you categorize a person or a group of people as irredeemable, unlovable by God, deserving only of your hatred, and you wish to rid them from your existence and periphery, that's hurling a rock. And what Jesus is showing in this passage is you can't even use the law of Moses to justify that, which means you certainly can't appeal to politics or Wokeism or morality, whatever reason you use to pick up a rock and chuck it at a person or a group of people, Jesus does not stand with you. He doesn't. Jesus, in the end of the story, stands with the woman. When all is said and done, Jesus stands with the woman. He's always stood with the sinner. The sinner. You know, a different group of religious establishment once challenged Jesus and said, hey, why do you hang out with these ruffians and not follow the law? And Jesus proceeds to tell a story about his dad in heaven and how he feels about sinners. And he tells a story. You know the story of a son who wishes his father dead and demands half of his inheritance now and takes that and goes to Vegas and Vegas, so to speak, and squanders it and has nothing, loses all his friends, ends up in you know, a really bad position with pigs, and uh, not with any dignity or any great motive, decides to crawl back home because it's better than being a slave. And in that story, where would you place the father? To those listening, they would assume the father is ready with a rock because the other sin that deserves stoning is disobedience to your parents. You all know that, parents? You got the law behind you. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's either the father's doing this, or at least if the father's merciful, a shut door, the son can never enter again, disowning. But where Jesus places the father is in the embrace of, his, of the son. The father doesn't hurl a stone. He hurls his body towards the sun, wraps his arms around the sun, kissing everywhere. Jesus says, that's where I place my dad. And that's where I place myself. He does not hurl rocks. He hurls himself. 
at the one who sins. Second, Jesus wants to be with us alone at our worst. Alone at our worst. You know, I, I love when I, when I enter into a gospel story, I love looking at it from different perspectives. And I want for a moment, the best I can as a man, to look through the eyes of this woman. Now, we're given this one clue that I'll help you with that opens up her world a little bit. Now, I, I got to admit, this is biblical conjecture, but I think I'm on good grounds. I start with this fact. In Deuteronomy, an unfaithful woman, uh, it has to be executed, but doesn't define how. The Mishnah, which was the Jewish commentary, it was rabbinic literature uh, interpreting the Torah, decided that there are two ways to execute an unfaithful bride or wife. If she was unfaithful during her engagement, you stone her. If she was unfaithful in her marriage, you strangle her. Take it up with the Mishnah, not me. So the fact that these men want to stone her tells us that most likely she was an unfaithful uh, fiance. And that opens up the world a little bit for me on her life because uh, if, you, if you were betrothed or, or engaged, it was done without your approval, without your volition. It's just two moms get together and says, yep, we're going to put our kids together. For religious reasons, socioeconomic reasons, they were match made early on. And so most likely she was betrothed to a complete stranger, someone she doesn't know well, doesn't love. So my guess here is that she was with someone she does care about. And on one faithful night with that guy, the doors bust open. Strangers come and grab her. And she doesn't even have time to process her seeing her man slip out. Because now she's being dragged into a different space, held captive, She's not quite sure what's happening until she looks out into the courtyard because they don't dare enter a space of a sinner. She sees religious establishment glaring at her. She goes, oh, I'm in trouble. As dawn begins to break, they take her from that space and they march her through the city. She knows what's up and she's hoping maybe in some dark alley, maybe where no one can see me. But she's realizing they're taking her to the, to the temple where maybe her uncle is there, her dad, her cousins. And she's hoping, okay, God forbid, it's a public part of the temple where everyone's there. And sure enough, they're taking her to the biggest crowd where hundreds are gathered to hear Jesus. And she knows Jesus. Jesus is a rock star. She's heard the rumors that maybe he's the Messiah. He's a friend of sinners. Maybe he's... He's the one, and here she is being tossed in front of him and all these men amidst her worst night. And my guess is she has her eyes closed, ready to be hit, to be killed. She hears chatter, but she's too freaked out to just pay attention. She has her eyes closed, ready, but nothing happens. And she dares to crack her eyes open, and she's the, str the strangest thing. The men are backing away. They can't even look at her. They're just dropping rocks, and they're going. Until it's just Jesus, and he gets up. And for a second, she's wondering if he'll pick up the rock they dropped. But instead, he comes to her and says, Madam, because in, in the... Bible says is this woman, but it's more polite. Madam, where are they? 
Has no one condemned you yet? No. And neither do I condemn you. And I think it's, it's so God that he would take the worst night of her life and make it into a divine appointment. You know, Tim Keller has this great line that God will give Satan just enough rope to hang himself. These evil, wicked men wanted to use her worst night to destroy her and destroy Jesus. Instead, all they did was escort her to grace. They just took her by the hand and walked her right to Jesus. And what do you know, friends? He's still doing that. On your worst night, on your worst day, if you hang in there and you don't run, you don't hide, you don't lie, you don't build a life of rationalizations and justifications and denials to hide your shame, but you hang in there so you're face-to-face with Jesus. Your worst night can be a divine appointment. Your worst moment can be a divine appointment. Because when Jesus clears the room of all the haters and naysayers, and he clears the room of your own accusations in your own head, because sometimes the worst stone throwers is you. Just like, throw it at yourself. If he clears the room, he can be with you. He will always say, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Because Jesus is not here to condemn you. He's not. He made sure of it by the cross and the resurrection. We can only condemn ourselves. We can believe the lies of Satan. We can believe that God does not want us. We can convince ourselves God will not. He'll hurl lightning bolts instead of his own body. We can run. We can hide like Adam and Eve did. But if Jesus can clear the room, he will always tell you, neither do I condemn you. Now, a lot of this story is biblical conjecture, right? I've recreated a scene. I don't know if exactly that's the way it happened. I think it's a good guess. But here's what I know is gospel truth from Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> it doesn't say part-time condemnation. It doesn't say every other day condemnation. It says no condemnation. Every voice that whispers at you, even it's from your own mouth, that says you are condemned and you don't belong with God is a lie. Lastly, Jesus is willing to trade places with us. As you're hearing this, you might feel like this is too good to be true, and it really is. How can this woman just be like set free when she did commit adultery? How is it that Jesus is like, I don't condemn you. You're good to go. There is in the game of golf. I don't play golf, but I heard there's something called a mulligan. Yeah, you can take one or someone gives one to you. But a mulligan is this thing you take when you want to erase your shot. Right? You bang it into the water. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a mulligan. And you pretend like it never happened. And so I wish in life I could take mulligans. You know, cop pulls you over. Mulligan. <laughs> You're the fight with your wife, mulligan. Let's pretend it never happened, sweetie. Um, you know, love keeps no record of wrongs. Come on, babe. <laughs> so is that what Jesus is doing? It's like, I- I'm going to give you a divine pass, a mulligan. I don't think so. Because the clue here is in the last verse of this passage, Jesus declared, go now and leave your 
life of sin. There's a gospel promise there. He wasn't just saying, leave that man, which is understandable, or leave these hookups, which is understandable. He's saying something outrageous. Leave your life of sin. Not just your moment of sin. Your life of sin. Some interpret this as maybe he's saying leave your life of prostitution, but there's no evidence here that she was a prostitute. I I read this as a normal Jewish girl who had a bad night with someone who betrayed her. She was set up. So what I see in this is something supernatural took place. The same way it happened at a well in Samaria or with someone who was possessed by seven demons in Magdala and a woman named Mary, that when this woman was alone with Jesus and heard his mouth saying, neither do I condemn you. With eyes of infinite love and mercy, she realized he's the one. He's the one. And when that happened, he was able to speak over her a gospel promise that's true for all of us who know Jesus. We can leave our life of sin because Jesus was going to pay for her life of sin. In fact, I think what was happening as he was down here scrawling in the dirt, along with scanning the hearts, I think he was fast-forwarding into his future. That happens. For example, at Cana, right? He was, comes into a wedding. His mom approaches him. Hey, Jesus, we've got a wine crisis here. And Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He wasn't speaking about that wedding. He was speaking about his time at Gethsemane when he'd have to spill his blood to provide the wine for the wedding, the real wedding of the church and Jesus. And so Jesus is looking forward to that moment as he's in this earth moment. The same thing I think is happening here. He's in the dirt. In his periphery, he sees men encroaching her with rocks. And he's thinking to himself, one day, men will approach me. They're going to hurl fists and accusations. They're going to insult me, hit me, beat me over the head, drive a crown of thorns into my brow, eventually nail me to a tree. Everything she's about to face, I'm going to take for her. And it's based on that because he was going to take her place. And I think that as he's contemplating the price he'd pay for her and for those others who would believe in him, it makes him pause a little bit, makes him look into the dirt. Maybe he's thinking one day I'll be in the dirt. Die the death humans deserve. And when he rises up, he knows he'll rise up from the dead as well. And he'll be able to tell her and tell you this morning, you can leave your life of sin now and forever because I'm willing to take the blows, take the death you deserve. So the only response I think of two, one, the first one I think is the most important. We just thank Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you set me free from sin because you took the death I deserve. Thank you, Jesus. The second is this, if you can bow your heads. Can you let the Holy Spirit clear the room? You might feel like you've been encircled by accusers, stone throwers. And maybe the most 
vicious stone throwers yourself. Imagine that room is cleared, your heart is cleared, your mind is cleared. It's just you and Jesus. Imagine the eyes she looked into. You think he's angry? You think he's upset? I think she looked into perfect love. And those eyes look into your soul and wants to say over you, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. We pray that over our people this morning. May they receive your mercy, receive your love. It was not a mulligan. It was not cheap. It cost you everything. So we thank you for the gospel of Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness. We ate of your body and blood today to celebrate and enjoy the forgiveness we receive. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We pray this in your name.